must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Be afraid. Be very afraid. I guess everyone's entitled to one good scare, huh? What's your favorite scary movie? You must first face your fears if you are to conquer them. The only thing to fear is fear himself. Hello, and welcome to Full Horror Show, the podcast where an animation nerd watches disturbing films while a movie buddy holds his hand. My name is Grant Letizia. And I'm Danny Clark. Here on Full Horror Show, we believe that what doesn't kill us just makes us stronger, even if it comes to movies. Take horror films, for instance. People either love them or hate them, and they usually stick to that mindset, sometimes for life. So is it possible to turn a non-horror movie watcher into a fan? Well, on this show, we are going to find out. Each episode, Danny leads me through a classic horror or spook-adjacent film, and we just see what happens. Speaking long-term, either A, I'm going to finally become a braver person who can enjoy a scary movie, or B, I'm just going to poop my pants and go back to watching Pixar movies. So today on the show, we have got a real good one for both of us. This is Mandy, the retro psychedelic 2018 film from director Panos Cosmatos. And I think this one is just perfect because it fits both of our wheelhouses, Danny. And I think you probably feel the same way. Yeah, this time I wasn't trying to scare the shit out of you. This is one that we both seen and we both love. And so we just want to geek out about it for a while, you know? Absolutely. What's amazing is um, this film, I think, is the perfect example of full horror show for both of us. Because, like you said, it's not necessarily scary. We I've already seen it. But even so, it's, it's exactly that fine line where I think if you were someone who didn't even like scary movies, you could watch this. And there's just enough stuff in it that will keep you interested and maybe make you enjoy something a bit spookier. Because I think that's totally what happened for me when I saw this back uh, in the day when it came out. And this is also interesting because this film was one that we ended up actually seeing together for the first time in the theater. So that was pretty neat because that isn't always the case, um, obviously. I mean, it definitely still has some nightmarish qualities to it. It's definitely violent as hell. <laughs> and, but, you know, it's peak Nick Cage. And uh, I think Panos Cosmatos brings this like really nice, beautiful imagery to it that makes it a, like it's almost like two films. It's it's a revenge story, but it's also kind of a romance. And I think it's psychedelic, like you said, and it's also a nightmare. So it's like it's got a lot of different things going. Absolutely. Yeah. And I don't want to, you know, try to whitewash it too much <laughs> or make it seem as if it's a it's a family picture. <laughs> but yeah, it's great, though, because it has all those elements that you mentioned. And it's it's just uh, it's something else. But some basic information on the film, it was actually six million dollars as a budget. So fairly small amount. And then it only grossed, though, about one point five million dollars. So not necessarily a lot of money. And I think, though, that it made up, um, at least according to Wikipedia, about four million on video sales after the fact. So it seems like it made back some of its budget there, which is good. Um, the important thing to remember, I think, about this movie is that while it wasn't necessarily a huge hit, it's become a cult classic, just like you mentioned, with all those different elements. So that in itself is far more important, I think. Um, and it stars, of course, as mentioned, Nicolas Cage as Red, uh, Angia Riseborough as Mandy and Linus Roach, completely stealing every scene he's in as Jeremiah. Oh, Jeremiah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, Danny, the, the first question then to kick off to you is why do you feel like this film is significant. I'll go back to when I first heard about this movie. So I was at the Birmingham Film Fest. Uh, it's the Sidewalk Film Festival. It was when Beyond the Black Rainbow came out. I didn't see it there. I unfortunately had to leave. Um, but I saw the trailer for the film and I was like, holy shit, I want to see this because it had this retro vibe. It had this 
80s synth score that was unbelievable. And every shot just looked visually stunning. Okay. And so, of course, I had to seek that movie out. That's what led me to Mandy. I was immediately obsessed with Panos Cosmatos. And as soon as this trailer dropped, I was like, holy shit, I have to see this. Again, one of the best trailers I've ever seen. I was a little bit nervous that it wouldn't live up to the trailer because I do think it's one of the best trailers ever made. <laughs> um, but you remember, uh, we both worked in post-production and I would always find trailers and bring you into my, my color suite and we would watch these trailers together. This trailer was one that I just kept bringing people in. It was just a revolving door of let's, let's check out this trailer. You got to see this shit. You got to watch this. And I was just so jazzed for it. So in terms of why it was significant for me, that's got a lot to do with it. I know it did really well at Sundance. I think it was at South by Southwest. I know it was at Cannes and it had like a four minute standing ovation. Um, and I didn't even know that much about his father. I didn't know George P. Cosmatos was his father who directed Tombstone and Rambo First Blood Part Two and Cobra. I mean, growing up, Cobra was like the movie we would go to just like Commando with Schwarzenegger. And you actually mentioned that when I texted you about it last night. It's just one of those perfect 80s, ridiculous Stallone movies. And Tombstone is a fucking masterpiece. I love Tombstone. That's one of the best Westerns that's ever been made. So clearly he was cut from the same cloth and Panos has the exact same skill set, but a much different eye. It's not 80s action. It's this new, trippy, psychedelic thing that is its own. One thing that I was able to do with the preparation for Mandy this time, because I wasn't spending all my time completely scared out of my mind, was looking up some of the stuff that you sent to me because I love all the different links you always send. Um, I ended up finding an interesting interview from um, thatshelf.com. This interview was done, I think, after Beyond the Black Rainbow came out, and he had a really interesting couple quotes that I wanted to share with you. Um, Panos did, that is. And it reminded me of things that we have talked about so many times. Like you always mention one of the first memories you have of movies is going through the video store looking at covers. And he said something very, very similar. Uh, he said that in his childhood, there was a store called Video Attic, and he wasn't allowed as a kid to watch horror movies. So all he would do is go through and look at the covers and look at the back of the box. And he would try to imagine what the movie was like without having watched it. It's exactly what we used to do. What's interesting, though, is I think he took this childhood example of how he would imagine what movies were like. And he shared something that I thought was very interesting and may shed some light too on our discussion to come when we talk about Mandy in more specifics after the break. He said something that I thought was really telling about how he looks at maybe filmmaking in general. And he said it was this idea that he likes this concept of making movies that are imagined artifacts from the past is his quote. He wants to show the viewer how you would imagine a movie that you've never seen, exactly like he was doing by looking at the back of the box cover. In other words, it's almost like he doesn't want to do a straight uh, movie creation experience where he has an idea and he, he makes that movie. He wants to add an extra layer to it where he's making an imaginary movie. Isn't it weird? It's like a, it's a step removed from almost typical ways that you would approach something like that. Much like Barker on our last episode, I think Panos creates a lore surrounding his films. And he creates this world, this universe that exists in the hour and a half, two hours you watch the movie. And I think anyone that's able to, number one, create that universe and two, stick to a consistent tone. 
and let the audience know exactly the mood they should be feeling, exactly what the stakes are, and keep you visually enticed the whole time, I think is so incredible. I think that's why he's one of the pro- most prolific filmmakers today. Mm-hmm. Linus Roach, the actor who plays uh, Jeremiah, called it a phantasmagorical, mythological, allegorical revenge story filled with heart. It at times feels like entering a nightmare, but in the end, it's profoundly real and a beautiful dream. And this like dichotomy of beauty and horror is so interesting. And I want to give a shout out to one of our listeners. Um, He was asking me if I knew of a movie that was both beautiful and disturbing, like a horror movie that was beautiful. This movie is it. Mandy is beautiful horror for sure. And to your point, another quote from Panos, he was talking about how story is the least interesting part about a film to him. It's how the story is told, not what the story itself is. And for him, the stories he wanted to tell are simple. And so he tries to just use the story as a catalyst around which all these elements can be grown and explored. Something else that came up in a bit of the research that I was doing was from an episode of What's in My Bag from a long time ago. I think it was also after Beyond the Black Rainbow came out. And I thought it was just charming because I like to find any example of a filmmaker or somebody who partakes of scary cinema and find examples of maybe when they were like me (laughs) or maybe when they weren't completely into it. And I love the fact that he shared in this simple interview when they were just going through this video store and he was showing off some movies maybe that he liked. Uh, One example was Poltergeist, which I have not seen. Oh, dude, that's definitely going to be on our list, by the way. Too scared to watch. (laughs) (laughs) And he said that he actually went and saw this in the theater when it came out. And around the time that something terrifying was happening, he begged his mom to leave the theater, didn't come back. (laughs) Uh, But the, the interviewer asked him, well, have you seen it since? And he said, no. Uh, I'm building back up to seeing it again. And this was 2012. So think about that. For him, uh, Poltergeist was so traumatizing and scary that it that much later in his life, he still hasn't gotten around to seeing it again. So that gave me hope. I was like, oh, okay. So <laughs> I'm not the only one who has some type of blockage here. <laughs> I was thinking about the opening quote from the film and what you said about Hellraiser being metal. I actually think this movie might be more metal than Hellraiser. Uh, The opening quote is, when I die, bury me deep, lay two speakers at my feet, put some headphones on my head and rock and roll me when I'm dead. And as soon as I saw that red text with the King Crimson uh, song coming on with the opening titles, I'm like, I'm in the right place. This is exactly where I want to be. This is exactly what I want to see. I just had a smile on my face. If I remember correctly, didn't we see this with a group here in Atlanta at the Plaza? Yeah, it was great because this was one that, as you said, you you hyped up to everybody that you probably knew. <laughs> so everybody went to see it. Um, there was lots of laughs and commentary and, and other great stuff. It was a really good experience. I remember that. When you said uh, your bit about Beyond the Black Rainbow, that was something that was an OG uh, full horror show movie because that was one of the first movies that you ever recommended to me, I think, that was out there. And I specifically remember being there uh, at the at the house because we were housemates at the time on the couch, the couch where we watched the movies. The whole time I kind of sat there just transfixed by what was going on and thinking this is sort of a new thing for me. This movie is creepy and weird, but I like it and I, I want to see more of this kind of thing. So I was so impressed by that and I knew it was a small film. 
no one that I knew certainly had talked about it other than you. And so I was equally as excited about the second film from this director. Getting to see this one in the theater was just that much better, at least for me. Well, and there's little touches, I think, that show, again, his craft with this film much like Tarantino likes to break up his films with chapters. This has little chapter breaks with title cards and I love the font and I love the music. I think the score by Johan Johansson is unbelievable. Everything from the camera work to the production design, there's just so much with his craft all over this film. It's incredible. It's a really, really good movie. And it, like I said, it, it hits all of those places for both of us, which is great because, yeah, sometimes we don't always agree on... <laughs> what we're enjoying the most, but that's fine. Like, because I think this is the perfect example of one that is right down the middle and it's, and it's incredible. So I love geeking out about these kind of movies where uh, there's just so much to unpack and enjoy for both of us. So that's gonna be something that we can break down in more detail after this break. And then we will come back and talk more about Mandy. And welcome back to Full Horror Show. We are talking about the 2018 film Mandy by Panos Cosmatos, and it's incredible. But what I'm going to actually do now is play this spoiler clip so that anybody who's listening knows that the movie Mandy is going to be spoiled from this point out. So you have been warned. Listen to me very carefully. Look out! The spoilers are coming. If you see the spoiler and it tells you what the movie is before you watch the movie, everything will be ruined. The spoilers are there! Get down! Get down! Get your ass to Jamie! <laughs> Do you like my Jingle All The Way reference? Yeah, man. <laughs> he says, Jamie! Uh, so the plot summary from IMDb goes like this. The enchanted lives of a couple in a secluded forest are brutally shattered by a nightmarish hippie cult and their demon biker henchmen propelling a man into a spiraling, surreal rampage of vengeance. So that being said, Danny, what hits you the freshest after seeing it uh, again this time? OK, so the first half of this film is so sad to me. It like it really hurts to watch the first half of this film for me because I know what's going to happen to her. She gets kidnapped. Jeremiah tries to get her to sleep with him <laughs> in this very strange reveal that he was a uh, musician who failed he had a record contract i guess he made a record he played the music for her she laughs in his fucking face when he reveals himself to her which is ridiculous it's, and then and that scene is so trippy man because like the colors are shifting like crazy they gave her lsd she got bit by this weird bug that i guess intensified the lsd i'm not really sure and then their faces start morphing together and since she won't do it and she laughs in his face he lights her on fire for Nick Cage to watch while he's barbed wired to a post that whole first half of the film. I kept waiting for that to happen. So the fresh, the fresh take on this is the first half really hurts it. Like it's painful for me. It's sad. It's beautiful. Their relationship is beautiful. I love their house in the woods. I love the light, the warm light in their house. Um, but then man, when the music kicks on and he starts forging the weapon, da -da 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 like that fucking scene, man, I, I, I just put a smile on my face and my grin just got bigger throughout the rest of the movie. Cause this is really two different movies. It's, it's that beginning part that's sad and beautiful and their relationship and their romance. 
and then her getting killed and then him going after those motherfuckers. (laughs) And just from that moment forward, man, fighting the motorcycle demons is unbelievable. The chainsaw scene. I mean, I I don't I'm going to just geek. I can't even contain myself trying to talk about all these different scenes. So the production design and the costume design, the lighting, the camera work, the color, all of that stands out so much is totally fresh. I absolutely adore the use of animated interstitials in this movie. It is, to me, the most perfect way of including what I consider to be the greatest filmmaking method that there is. And I love it because it's stylized, it's full animation, it's wonderful color, and it goes along so well with the titles that come up each time to separate the different chapters. There aren't a lot of them, but whenever Nick Cage falls asleep and has essentially a bad dream, he just gets these animated visions. And I love that because I feel like it's such an interesting, good choice to make because the entire movie is so trippy anyway. What are you going to show in a dream that's very different when everything else is already so colorful and crazy. So you go to the the one thing that you can't really replicate any other way with shooting it, and that's the good animation. And I just really appreciate that he added those in there because it just adds the extra level of mm, just 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 right spice, you know, for me. Well, yeah, and it kind of <laughs> goes along with the live action shots. Like the final shot of the film after he's looking at the camera with crazy eyes and he's bleeding or there's blood all over his face. Um, there's that epic shot of the planets with, in the background and the sky is red again with this huge like almost like rock terrain that's also next to the forest, those same types of shots are in the animated shots in the dreams. And the lake that they were at early in the film is in the animated part you're talking about. She's like laying in the water and her eyes open and they're red and it, the camera tilts up and you see some of those same rock formations and some of those planets in the background. Animation is so much more imaginative. It can be like you, you can go anywhere with animation. You can do anything you want. Whereas you have the limitations of CGI and budget. But in this case, he used this metalocalypse style animation is what I would compare it to. I don't know if you feel that way. Or heavy metal. Yeah. Heavy metal is what I thought of. Yeah. And I think metalocalypse pulls from heavy metal for sure. It does. What do you, I don't even know what you call that. It's like flash style 2D animation, but. It can appear as if it's rotoscopes in a sense because it, it has realistic proportions. But then you can go ahead and give it the same kind of like uh, different varying colors. It's still you know, telegraph that it's obviously animated. And I love the combination of those two things. Um, Andrea Klebach did the color correction on this. And I think it's one of the most beautifully colored films I've ever seen. He always has texture to the shot. There's also a lot of grain in the shots. And I actually want to mention one thing about this because another quote from Panos in this behind the scenes DVD extra I saw, he says, films now are obsessed with cleanliness, crispness, veracity, and detail. And to me, there is something beautiful about a mystery being left in the darkness and the shadows and the boiling grain of a film. As someone who works in color and compositing, I thought a lot while I was watching this movie visually about how they were using light and shadows, even scenes towards the end when he walks into the temple and he sees Jeremiah, they they're literally strobing the light up and down to cross cut between the two of them. And rather than it just being a straight cut, they're using light to act as the cut. And that happens a lot because in the scene where the motorcycle gang of demon people come and take them, 
he goes almost to a very um, stuttery kind of flashing strobing effect with blue lights, I think. And it obscures the bikers almost completely from us seeing what they actually look like. But there's a persistence of vision there that leaves their image silhouetted in your mind's eye watching it they where you can kind of make out what they are but you can't really and that mixed with the sound design and how it like flickers it's all it sounds almost like a light flickering on and off so good it's way more effective at making them intimidating than if he just showed them walking in the room any other way that's a perfect example of how he uses light it's really beautiful oh yeah and the, another shot that i absolutely love so much is the reverse almost point of view of Mandy as she's coming down the forest road and sees the car coming towards her that contains all the people in the hippie cult. When everything's red around her. It is probably the most hypnotic single image that I can you know, come up with from the film because it almost starts off as such a very simple image with a road in the center of black trees and the car coming towards you, which seems simple, but it really gives you this very interesting, warm, kind of like buzzy feeling that you're watching something that's kind of just shifting and changing and moving in front of you. It feels almost like you're having a bit of a fever dream as you watch it. And I love that. And it's, it's incredible. Well, and it, it definitely like, it tells us what we're supposed to feel in that moment because you're, you're thinking the first time you see it, why is it red right now? Is there something bad that's about to happen? And of course the car pulls up and that's when Jeremiah first sees her. And then they hold on that image of her just the use of color again it's unbel- it's unreal oh and even like the horn of abraxas which i love the lore every time they show anything that has to do with the demons the motorcycle demons they have these like strobe green effect like there's the knife that he stabs red with right before he lights mandy on fire when he hands that to jeremiah there's a flashing green that happens I didn't notice that the first time I saw it. That This time is the first time I noticed that. What I think is interesting when you mentioned the specifics about color and his choices with the, the way that the shots are timed and, and the pacing of the shots and how they unfold. I think it's so interesting because this movie to me is uh, one billion times better on repeat viewings. Not that it's not good on the first viewing, but what's so interesting is, so the decision, even your examples of like to to do interesting lights that flash on an object that they pick up. Or for instance, the car that moves at you very, very slowly down the road that's red. The first time you see this movie, I remember my feelings as I watched it. And it was a mixture of, that's incredibly beautiful. What the hell is happening? Because it doesn't, it, the first watch through, it doesn't make a lot of sense. It's so interesting because what he's doing is he's, he's telegraphing with color and with pacing and, and a lot of stuff that's not obviously part of the script or anything else. He's not telling you outright what's happening, but he's telling you exactly what, you, like you said, what you should be feeling with these things, but in advance of bad stuff happening or in advance of the situation unfolding itself. And it's just funny because on the first watch through, when you don't know the hippies are really bad and that they're going to take her and do all these terrible things, it seems like a very strange sort of buildup. But then on repeat viewings, everything becomes so much clearer. The choices become clearer and it, it only makes it that much more poignant. I think. Do you feel like you can remember what it was like the first time watching it before you knew that she was going to get off? And how did it affect you when Mandy basically was removed from the story like that as a character? Did you expect that? What did it make you feel? I mean, it was deeply tragic as someone who's experienced loss, not in that way. I empathized with Red's character in that moment. Um, and I felt for him and it made me really sad. Nicolas Cage's performance when that happens and what happens after. 
I thought this time watching it, like if someone dies in that way, what do you do? I mean, I'd probably call the police, but, which he doesn't. He goes after them, but he goes inside and he's worn out. He's exhausted. And so he walks in. And by the way, quick shout out to um, Casper Kelly and Shane Morton. Casper Kelly uh, works for Adult Swim. Shane Morton is a, um, a gore makeup artist here in Atlanta. Uh, they created the Cheddar Goblin commercial that happens when he walks back into the house, which is so fucking random. And it's perfect for the viewer because you just saw this horrible thing happen. You saw her bones as ash. He picks up her skull and it disintegrates with the wind. It's so beautiful and horrible at the same time. And then he walks inside to a mac and cheese commercial with a cheddar goblin vomiting mac and cheese all over these kids and them saying, yeah, bye, cheddar goblin, mac and cheese. And he's just like, what the <laughs> fuck? And he goes into the bathroom, grabs a bottle of vodka and and since leaving Las Vegas, I've not seen Cage like this. He takes that fucking bottle down. He's grabbing his throat just so he could swallow it. And he just keeps drinking it and screaming and yelling at the camera. That is one of the most unhinged, just incredible performances by him of every movie he's ever done. I, I think Mandy is probably one of his strongest performances, honestly. So going back to what you're asking, when that happened, I remember him in that bathroom and thinking like the rage that you feel, the anger that you feel when someone dies, when someone's close to you. And I couldn't imagine it being a murder and in the way that he experienced. This brings up, I guess, something that we touched on a little bit the last episode where you were mentioning that one of the ways that you can view horror is a way to sort of cope and deal with loss or tragic things that happen in life. Um, you know, knowing a bit about your history, you know, does this film sort of do anything for you as someone who's, you know, had your mom taken away from you? Like, what does that, what does that feel like? I mean, I think the most obvious thing is the, the anger that you feel, uh, at the loss of somebody, uh, close to you. And I think that the, the rage that Nick Cage showcases throughout the second half of this film. And the reason we cheer it on as much as we do is not only because of Mandy's death, but in my case, perhaps that the loss of my parent, you know, um, someone close to me, someone that I loved, uh, you empathize with this character and you feel it. And so then you're just strapped in on board, ready to go. You know, you want to wield that weapon with him and fight these demons, fight your own demons. You know, um, that's how I feel. I mean, I think the pain in the beginning is less tangible now because it happened. My mother died in 2005. It's 2023. Now it's been a long time. Um, the pain is there, but it doesn't come up as much as the, as the anger does And the anger has more to do with her not being here anymore. And I can't do anything about it. You know, this is the hand that I've been dealt and what am I going to do? Um, in my case, listening to heavy metal or going and sitting in the theater with friends and watching a movie like this, and it does make me feel better. I don't really know why, but I do think there is something to it being possibly cathartic. What about you? Well, this is something that we actually both um, share, which is interesting because I don't know exactly at what point, you know, we connected about this similarity in life, but we realized that we had both lost a parent um, and opposites. Um, I lost my dad when I was 17. You know, it's something like you said that happened so long ago that the, the immediate feelings of loss, you know, have passed, obviously, but kind of like you said, 
uh, in the years in between, there's just a lot of, I, I guess the feeling that I have is a lot of just disappointment about the fact that that person could have been there to answer questions or weigh in on stuff or give you advice, especially at least for me, you know, I have this not necessarily wrong idea, but I have this very urgent idea that if I'm going to ever be complete as a person or as a man, I have to have like a dad who will explain things to me and help me figure out what to do. And I think there's this sense of um, the palpable sense of like loss when you, you want to feel like there's somebody that you can call, you know? And yeah, I think this movie sort of works on that level because I'm getting choked up just a little bit. I think it's because Mandy seems like such a decent person, you know, that has clearly been through some shit anyways. And yeah, she's got trauma for sure, mm -hmm. but she's kind. Yeah. And because she's kind, you know, if you, if you have had somebody in your family that, you know, was loving and kind to you, then you lose that person. You just can't really ever seem to get over that. Like, I don't think that, um, you're ever really going to be the same afterwards. And it's just always a difference. Like there's the same way. I think that in a movie, it's, I know it's a silly example, but like in the movie, when it's jarring, you know, to, to lose a character that you've been attached to, I mean, obviously to a much greater degree that happens when someone exits your life to that degree, it's never, I would say, hopefully never as dramatic or intense and serious, um, as this film makes it, but the anger is definitely still there. And what I thought was interesting watching it was thinking about like how it's almost as if in that scene that you mentioned when Cage is in the bathroom <laughs> guzzling what I assume is vodka. Yeah. Uh, it's almost like you watch him walk through every stage of grief in like a two minute stretch. Yeah. Yeah. He goes through denial to rage to like acceptance to sadness to guilt to back to rage again to even apathy at one point. He's just sitting there. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's obviously an incredible tour de force of acting, but it also feels like that is what it's like to grieve for somebody because you can't really control at a certain level how you have those emotions. They just happen. And you sometimes don't really feel like you're in control of those things. And um, I think also maybe you read a little bit too about how Panos has struggled with substance addiction and other things. And I think that makes sense as well. Like, you know, we're going to turn to whatever kind of you can at times to find some way to sort of fill that emptiness, especially if you have a loss. And I guess what I like about the movie is it takes the time to do that, even though it still goes full horror show and gives them the chance to get revenge, which is very satisfying and great. Like you said, it doesn't cheap out on the moments where it really does feel sad. What really almost hits me the most, other than the horror of realizing what they're going to do when they actually burn her is it's just kind of when it's quiet afterwards and they just leave him there and it just feels like there's this emptiness there. That's the part that I think it's just the, the fact that he had someone with him and now he doesn't, and now he's going to be alone. I think it's interesting that, um, with the podcast that I first heard that said about grief, pain, loss, trauma, all existing in horror as a genre visitations, not specter vision. That's the company, but visitations with Elijah Wood and Daniel Noah, they are the producers of this film. They saw beyond the black rainbow and they loved it so much that they, I think financed his next feature sight unseen. They didn't even see a script. And so they were, they were heavily involved and let him do his thing. And there's so much of that core thesis in this film, the pain and the trauma and the loss that exists and the grief that you experience and the rage after it. I think before films like this, 
I hadn't thought about it in that way. And of course, before that podcast, but you know, we are both creatives and as a creative, I think before I would try to seek out art as therapy or like watch movies. And it was through my passion for film and television. I think I used as a form of escape. I don't think I thought about it as a, as a cathartic experience until more recently, as we've discussed. And so I think it's interesting to look at it from that viewpoint and, and try to dive into that and hit that nerve and see what that's all about, you know, because rather than trying to hide it, rather like people who lose someone in the beginning, everyone's like, I'm so sorry, you know, it'll get better. It never goes away. It's there forever. Mm -hmm. And that's the part that if people haven't lost someone yet, especially people who are young, that they'll never understand. And that's okay. That's not their fault. It's not a, not a big deal. It's just, I've learned that you kind of have to ride the roller coaster of emotions. If you're feeling sad, feel sad. Let yourself feel sad. If you're feeling angry, feel angry. Let yourself feel angry with a balance. I mean, you don't want to go like Nick Cage on somebody, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, I'm going to go wield an ax. Um, but yeah, I think that it's an interesting conversation. And I think this film does that. I think that Panos Cosmatos, Daniel Noah, Elijah Wood are part of this new generation of modern horror filmmakers uh, like Hereditary and The Lighthouse and even a movie like Lamb. Um, just I think that horror today is so different than horror from the 80s or even from the 90s. And I think this movie is a, a very strong contender for one of the best that's been made in the last 10 years. And it's amazing. I think that it can go as hard as it does in both of those directions like we talked about. I think it makes you feel complete empathy and sympathy for the characters, but then it also is able to do a completely ridiculous, incredible like action movie that's very 80s style in the second half. And I don't think they feel like they're disparate. Like it doesn't feel like they're fighting each other at all. So this is just something I just wanted to throw at you that I don't know, if, you know, certainly it's, it's probably not the most original thought ever. I haven't necessarily done a ton of like Googling for a billion different theories about this film. But one thing that I thought of based off that discussion that we just had was it's possible that you could read the film as some type of revenge, but not necessarily revenge on let's say people. But for instance, if I was given the chance to get revenge on something like brain cancer, you bet your fucking ass I would like if I could take a weapon and, you know, have done anything to kill the cancer like in my dad. Of course, I would have done like anything to do that. Like, I think it's almost more like um, it could be viewed almost as an expression of how much you are willing to fight for that person if you could. But as you know, and as I know, like sometimes there isn't anything that you can actually fight. I totally agree with that for sure. And I also think like I've been thinking about besides anger and loss and trauma, um, what else, you know, exemplifies horror and it is fear. And so what am I most afraid of? I think it's already happened. Like the loss of someone close to you. I think that's probably the thing I'm most afraid. I'm actually more afraid of that than my own mortality, you know, like it's because we're here and we're enjoying life. And so we want those around us that we love to remain here. So obviously we want to stay, but we want those around us to stay as well. You know, so I think that that's probably the thing I'm most afraid of. And I've been realizing, you know. Yeah, it messes you up in a very real way. And uh, yeah, you're just not the same afterwards. And motorcycle demons and <laughs> crazy, weird psychedelic trips are the result. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so my dad passed away in 2002. And it was one of those things that was sudden because he had brain cancer. 
I don't think it was the same day, but it was pretty close. We were like, well, let's go see Attack of the Clones. And I remember just like sitting in that theater watching <laughs> Attack of the Clones being like, I fucking hate this movie. <laughs> watching Yoda jump around too fast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. There, there's a certain level where certain movies like they can distract you or they can't. And I think that's what's funny, because, again, you were saying, like, if you go to movies for just a pure escapism, sometimes <laughs> sometimes that doesn't work. That's right. But, yeah, it's almost like I can't watch Attack of the Clones and not kind of think about it, which is interesting. It's OK. You don't need to rewatch that. anyway. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, <I know>. <laughs> <laughs> that's the one Star Wars movie we can forget about. It's fine. Yeah, I really wasn't missing that much. Yeah. So this brings us to actually a good point, because um, we have to sort of do a little bit of a check in here. Interestingly, there's no reason to really include in this particular episode anything about my fear management because there is none. <laughs> uh, this is the perfect example of a movie that I'm OK with because it rides that fine line of being amazingly interesting and like crazy and having these themes that suck me in. To the point where I'm not bothered necessarily by the gore. And this is where I wanted to give you a bit of an update on all this. Okay, so, you know, we're what, four or five episodes in now. And uh, I have to just report that I have not experienced any ill effects from seeing these films. And I'm sort of surprised. That's good. I'm sort of surprised. Well, I, I, I actually I had texted you asking, like, are you having nightmares? Have you been scared of any of these movies has any of it fucked with you and uh i'm glad to hear that that's good i'm a little surprised myself i i fully expected especially after hellraiser that and the experience of watching that and feeling physically scared afterwards that maybe this would be something that would happen other than maybe just kind of feeling a little bit jittery the first couple of days is sort of you know gone away after that and and then watching this movie again sort of just reinforced some other things for me about how interesting this whole thing works with what sort of movies we like or don't like and what we see is scary, not scary. Cause I had to ask myself some specific questions cause I wanted to sort of figure this out because for me, I don't understand almost at a certain level what it is about certain things that make me scared and then other things that don't, I don't know. I tried to dig into that a bit more and I came up with actually a couple interesting um, observations that I wanted to share with you. So the first one was, I think if a horror movie or any movie has characters that tend to have a loss of agency throughout the majority of the picture, that is something that I think I perceive as much more scary. And what I mean by agency is just that, I guess it's it's whether the things that are happening to them are things that happen based off of their decisions or their choices that they have made, or whether it's something that's happening because it's completely out of their control and they have zero you know, stake in what's occurring to them. So clearly for me, it's something about control and it's something about whether I can stand watching people go through something that's being forced on them and then how I feel about that. Because I will say Hellraiser was scary to me. I think Hellraiser was scary to me because those Xenobites were completely uncontrollable by everybody. They had some weird mystical system that was surprising and scary and you didn't know what was going to happen, but they did it. Well, unless you just don't open the box. <laughs> and I would not have opened the box. No, but. I would not open the box. No. I mean, the minute it starts unfolding and doing creepy things, that's that's where you stop. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's a there's a weird system that they know and, and you're not in control of it. The fact that, you know, the teenage daughter and I know we're going back a little bit, but like the daughter, the father, the mother, every character almost in that film is helpless it feels like or responding in a knee-jerk way to what's occurring to them because of these forces at play if you look at mandy yes that does happen for the first half you know i'm fully invested in that but what's interesting is just like you said you got a huge grin when nicholas cage starts 
forging his um his acts of of like valor there who knew he had these skills <laughs> with his sunglasses on at night it's amazing we haven't even talked about him fighting the fucking demon in front of the car on fire <laughs> when he uses that thing to chop that thing's head off. It was an amazing fight sequence. Panos in the in the behind the scenes, Panos Cosmatos said that he they did that in one night. And usually on a big budget film, they'll have a week and they'll, you know, do it several nights and cut it together. But they they choreographed it perfectly. And, and yeah. you buy it when Nick Cage is fighting that guy. Totally. And because of that factor that Nicolas Cage's character, Red, is making this rah-rah decision that I'm going to go out and fight these things and kill them, there's something that that does to me where I'm like, oh, well, this character is choosing to do this. He's walking into this. I can probably choose to do the same thing. Now you're on a hero's journey with him. Mm -hmm. For sure. For some reason, that makes a difference to me. I think there's a level of camp to this film, but it's so subtle. It's not enough to really, I, I would not categorize this as campy, mm -hmm. but I think that there are a couple of scenes when Nick Cage first puts like the vest on and when he like takes the drugs to go fight these guys. Mm -hmm. um, it reminds me of Army of Darkness a little bit because he's, you know, he's gearing up, he's forging a weapon, he's fighting with a chainsaw. Yeah. He's got blood all over his face. He's fighting demons. He's got little lines like, you ripped my shirt. <laughs> You know, I think it's got a little bit of camp in there and less just straight full on horror like Hellraiser is. And at the same time, as you mentioned earlier, which I wanted to refer back to, there's totally Hellraiser in this thing. The way the way that these biker guys look is completely like the Cenobites. I had not seen Hellraiser before, so I didn't see that. Uh, it's amazing. And all of their weird weapons, the way they were designed, like the one is like constantly dripping out of its mouth, like while it's breathing heavily. Then the other guy, I mean, talk about a disturbing scene. That house that he that Nicolas Cage gets captured in, he's kidnapped when he like knocks the the one demon off that ledge that where does that go? By the way, that <laughs> hole just kept going on forever. It just goes to hell. I don't know. <laughs> the guy sitting on the couch doing drugs when he walks over to him, he's got this like razor blade strap on on that. He clearly killed the family in the house with that is extremely disturbing, but they didn't show it. And so I think it's a little bit less disturbing for that reason. That reminded me of seven. Mm -hmm. I mean, dude, the fucking giant chainsaw. So good. When he went to fight the big guy and he pulls out the giant chainsaw and he can't get his chainsaw to to turn on. <laughs> that fight sequence is amazing. I love it. And then I think I had one other thought as far as like maybe what scares me, or what doesn't um, to just round out this this point I'm making. And I think it's that. It feels sometimes like I'm a complete hypocrite because of this. And this is really interesting. But I actually love it when animation goes full horror show and and is scary and is bloody and is dangerous that way. Like Ninja Scroll or something like that. Whatever it might be like, because I sort of view, like I said previously, animation as simply being the best kind of filmmaking in my mind. Again, that's my opinion. Um, I don't think it's a genre. I don't think it's a style. It's filmmaking, and it for me, it is absolutely my favorite. Yeah, you're appreciating the craft. I totally get that. Yeah, I, yeah, I go like almost straight to that, and I it's not the content then that bothers me in the slightest. I just love it so much that they went there and they did that to that skill level, and I adore it. So it doesn't fall into the category of being something that spooks me out, if that makes sense. I think because I've been watching horror for so long, I'm at that place with horror as a genre. Hmm. Like I appreciate the craft so much. I'm looking at the gore and the effects and how they're doing it, the narrative, the lore, the fantasy, all of it, the, what subgenre it is, if it's sci-fi, whatever. 
Do you think perhaps it has to do with tone then? Because there is a very specific tone with a film like Hellraiser or a film like Possession, even as opposed to a film like Mandy. And that's where I think a movie like this belongs in the cult classic film uh, category, because we're all going to go on this ride with Cage. As soon as you see him on the cover, you're like, when you look at the cover of Hellraiser, you're frightened. When you look at the cover of Mandy, you're like, whoa, that looks trippy. That looks surreal. Nick Cage. Yeah, I'm on board. Yeah, you know, he's a fighter. Yeah. So I think you feel safe because you're like behind him fighting these demons. Yep. I wanted to make another comparison before I forget. Uh, Jeremiah is this deranged lunatic who thinks that, you know, because he didn't get this record deal, he can take whatever he wants. He talks about how God spoke to him and now he just takes whatever he wants. And there's a part when she's laughing at him and he goes, don't you fucking look at me. And he's looking at everyone else in the room saying, don't you fucking look at me. That reminded me of Hopper, Dennis Hopper from Blue Velvet, when he goes, don't fucking look at me. And there's so much Lynch in this film, too. I think that tonally, Panos Cosmatos has this vibe that is all his, okay? But there is a Lynchian vibe to it because he creates this universe. He has these strange characters. Even the guy who's always looking down, but his eyes are looking up, the dude with long hair that he's like a mouth breather. That guy's sitting there like with his mouth hanging open the whole time. Or um, even Jeremiah's like, you know, right-hand man, the guy who blows the horn of uh, Abraxas, like that guy, the way he talks to Jeremiah, Jeremiah's like, I got to find that girl. And he goes, oh yes, Jeremiah, that's a great idea. The way they talk (laughs) to each other is just so strange and, and weird. And to me, Lynchian. Um, Mm -hmm. No, I agree. I think that adds this element that is it's not scary. It's it's just very, very strange, you know? Also, going back to Nuggets that foreshadow, I'm sorry I'm all over the place. I just remembered this. She tells uh, one of Jeremiah's people, the lady, uh, who comes into the convenience store where Mandy is working, um, that, she, that they live down by Crystal Lake. Crystal Lake is the name of the lake in Friday the 13th. And in Friday the 13th, He's, you know, Jason is killing all of these camp counselors by Crystal Lake. And I don't think that's a coincidence. I think that's definitely an, an homage of sorts. And it's interesting that it's a lady that says that to, to her. But you haven't seen Friday the 13th, so we won't get into that yet. No, I wouldn't know that. But that's amazing. What in the world? That was a fresh take because when I saw it the other last night, I was like, wait a minute. And I Googled it and I, I was like, yep, that is Friday the 13th. I mean, he has references to Dungeons and Dragons in this. He references comic books. So like, I love all the pop culture references. It's it's amazing. There's a lot of it. Heavy metal bands. She's wearing Black Sabbath and Motley Crue t-shirts. Yeah. So it's, it's like you said, it's two different movies. It really is because the first half is this really beautiful tale of these two people. And I want to echo what you said. I love their relationship. It's so it feels so unforced and so natural. And you really get the impression that, you know, the the unspoken things that we're probably supposed to guess about these people, you know, some rumors or, you know, things that I've heard that I didn't come up with were, you know, oh, Nicolas Cage was probably in Vietnam. He's a Vietnam vet. So he has PTSD. Oh, she was maybe abused physically and certainly emotionally in her past childhood by her dad and probably other things. She has a scar in her face that's never explained. You know, lots of people, I'm sure, have their theories about those things. And I think it's fair to take those any way you want. But what's clear is in their relationship together, 
it's just this really good kind of quiet love that they have. And I love that example because I just don't feel like you see that much in films where it doesn't have to be ridiculous. There doesn't have to be a lot of drama. Even what's fascinating too is there's like a sex scene, but not really. She more or less like when they're camping, I guess, comes out of the water and, you know, gives him the lovey-dovey eyes, gives him the bedroom eyes. And by the way, she's got crazy eyes. <laughs> she's got like David Bowie eyes, like, and which it, it makes it like kind of haunting and also kind of beautiful and just very strange, you know? Yeah, but it, there's there's tension there. Like there's yeah. you can feel it and you can tell that they like you can tell that they love each other, which is such an interesting thing to say. And then but what's great is he doesn't even need to show nudity. He doesn't need to show anything about, uh, you know, an explicit scene to make that clear. Like we can tell what the connection that they have. And he's just quietly supportive of her. And I really love the relationship in this movie. She's getting high and painting, you know, pictures of wolves and of, of, of him. It's unbelievable. I love the, uh, the book she's reading. Um, there's this quote from it. Cold as ice, his fist closed around the serpent's eye. Slowly, he withdrew it and held it before him in the fading light of the blood red suns. It glowed from within. It's just it's got this like mythic uh, enchanted style to it. Mm -hmm. And her whole she's so um, otherworldly almost she feels like uh she belongs in lord of the rings or something in the beginning of the movie just wandering through the forest like she's in part of the elven <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah, exactly or something so speaking of which I had a specific question just to see what you thought about this um what do you think was maybe the rationale for the ronald reagan quote on the radio at the beginning from his car I did watch Cobra right after this last night because I got so fucking excited that I wanted to. Um, and Cobra definitely is like a pro police, um, almost like pro killing bad guys type of movie. And in the eighties, so many movies were about like, you know, killing a bunch of kids having sex at a camp <laughs> in Friday the 13th, you know, or anyone who drug do, does drugs is going to, is going to die, you know, like drugs are bad and, uh, sex is bad. Pornography is bad. Um, maybe Panos is commenting on that. I don't know. Um, maybe it's a reflection on the style of the films of his father and the way of the eighties, as opposed to the way of today. But I just think the fact that he turned it off is like, yeah, fuck that shit. I don't want to listen to that. <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah. And it, I do like your comparison to thinking about Cobra and everything else, because, yeah, that I think that that's very apt. But that uh, I think basically does it. That's our show. That's our talk about Mandy. It is an amazing movie that I think everybody should watch. I mean, give it a chance if you don't like scary movies, because I think for the reasons we talked about, there's so much good stuff that's going on with this thing. Um, even as somebody who gets easily spooked, I think it's an amazing trip. Full Horror Show is actually produced and edited by me, Grant Letizia. You can find us on Instagram at Full Horror Show. You can also visit us at fullhorrorshow.com where you can listen to all the back episodes. If you have any feedback or have a recommendation for a movie that you think goes Full Horror Show, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at fullhorrorshow at gmail.com. Finally, if you enjoyed the episode, leave us a review. Tell us how much you liked it on Apple Podcasts or just wherever you listen. So until then, next time, stay spooky, my friends.